Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, February 10th, 2023. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Noah, you're on Jonah Goldberg's Remnant podcast uh, this week or today, and uh, did a great job. People should go listen, go go and uh, go and listen to uh, Noah's expressions of uh, more uh, of untrammeled opinion uh, without me interrupting him. That's, that's uh, the running Jonah's gag. Podcast. Yeah, the running <laughs> he gag. Will not, he will yes. not let you get away with anything. He will, yeah, no, he will. Yes. <laughs> he begins by saying, you, you've heard no on the podcast, you know, occasionally when I stop talking. So Jonah is your most loving troll, John. <laughs> yes, that, that, is, that, is, that is very true. Christine also has been on the, I, Abe, Abe, have you been on the remnant? Okay, well, I'm sure that'll happen. No, I've not. Um. um so we got a lot of little uh, little bits of things to talk about. Uh, interesting that yesterday the Pentagon um, or some, you know, Biden, I guess, declassified a bunch of information to uh, make the case that the Chinese uh, balloon is a very serious uh, intelligence and national security threat. Um, not quite sure why they felt the need to do that. I mean, maybe they did it because they gave a backfill to the Washington Post two days earlier that had literally every detail that they then declassified. So they figured everybody else should have it as well, since someone basically just, um, you know, did a dump on it uh, 48 hours earlier. Um, but again, does this mean that they are concerned about the continuing political fallout and want to get ahead of it or that they're getting some pushback abroad and they want to make reassure our allies that we didn't go off half cocked. I, I, I don't really know anybody have any theories about why they would, why they would do such a thing. Um, Maybe to try to um sort of correct for uh the perception that they had left americans completely in the dark about the whole thing while it was happening about all the confusion um about what it was what what our intentions were uh what the timeline was so maybe now they're trying to trying to sort of um come up with a a, a measure of transparency here Clean up on aisle four, in other yeah. words. For, I mean, and and it, it could be a legitimate reason that they wanted to see what it had, declassify the, you know, decide what was actually uh, information that they could share. I I also think it's a pushback against the 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 Chinese argument that it was just a weather balloon. I mean, this clearly exposes the fact that it wasn't, which we knew anyway, but is at least officially now been acknowledged by the Biden administration. But I, I'm with Abe. I think they realized that, um, and and it's not just that they didn't speak to the American public. When they did speak, it was very flippant and inconsistent in messaging. So now I guess they've devised a consistent message about what this was, what the threat is. Um, but going forward, you know, what's the plan? 
I mean, Biden well, has said some pretty well, strong words, but what what's the plan going forward when this happens again? Briefly, there's we have no <laughs> we don't necessarily know if this is for a domestic audience. It could very well be for a Chinese audience, right. or for that matter, an international audience. Apparently, we're briefing our allies on the degree to which this is, in, according to the State Department, a global fleet of surveillance balloons. And we're updating our allies on this intelligence now that everybody knows everything retrospectively. But yes, the Chinese, the the idea that this is this is all to communicate a lot of stuff to Beijing isn't that a, that a question either. Uh, I think that's that that's likely the case. There was one uh, one element of this that uh, for domestic consumption that is part of these stories, which is an effort to explain why the balloon wasn't shot down over the Aleutians when it crossed into American airspace, where we have a lot of stuff that you don't want anybody to see <laughs> apparently which is the ocean's very deep there you know it's 30 degrees in the water so if you shoot it down there and you want to retrieve the material from the balloon you know you you're not going to be able to like the divers and it's 180 degrees deep 180 feet deep and you know divers won't be able to deal with it and you're sort of sacrificing it whereas if you get it over the atlantic and you shoot it down over the atlantic then you can get it there but apparently because it's only 50 feet deep. But apparently, it's not so easy to get stuff out of the Atlantic either. I mean, it's not, but briefly, <clears throat> it wasn't, it was in May that we pulled a, a 34,000 pound plane out of a 12,000 foot trench off the coast of China because we had to get it. So it can be done. Well, but it, I'm just saying, like they said, okay, I, I get it. Was, it. I'm yeah, just January, I'm a note of skepticism. Yeah. Well, they said in this Washington in the in the declassified declassifying piece that they hadn't yet gotten up any of the really important telemetry stuff from the bottom of the ocean. I I, I I'm with Noah. I mean, because the, first of all, I think they, they 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 could have gotten it over the Pacific. And they could have gotten it at any number of moments when it was over an unpopulated area of of the mainland u.s you mean you mean like montana and wyoming which are largely unpopular right or british columbia where right where it loitered forest (laughs) right for a very long time yeah i mean i'm not i know it sounds that sounds a little like ridiculous but it is the case that i don't know what is it like six hundred thousand people live in montana wyoming and it's you know so the it's practically they're together the size of texas so uh, you know, Nevada, which of course is not implicated. I just know that Nevada is like 86% owned, you know, is government owned land that nobody lives on. So I, but I mean, so if those arguments don't, you know, sway you, then this declassification stuff isn't going to help. Um, uh, but we don't, I mean, I don't know. Romney said he was swayed by this. <laughs> Romney came out and said another administration was right. Not to shoot it down until they did shoot it down. So, right, allowing that we don't know what they they know and what they're talking about, maybe. But I still, I'm still um, 
it either was capable of gathering and relaying intelligence information back to Beijing or it wasn't. And I've and there's been some discrepancy between what what the Biden administration uh, has acknowledged and what defense officials are saying, because defense officials are still telling reporters that, you know, well, it was a low to moderate likelihood that they're relaying information. I'm like, what what does that even mean? I mean, either it was capable of doing this or it was not. And by all estimates, it likely was, given that it had the solar panels, which could include sensors that could and, and really could relay information. And it was hovering that the, these structured the, these balloons can actually hover over certain areas. They don't just drift aimlessly. So the idea that this was, you know, a rogue weather balloon or that it wasn't capable of relaying intelligence. I think that like th- there's a lo- there's still some weasel weaselly language that's being used. Well, I mean, again, I, this is just like wild speculation on my part but you know you can send you can do something like this and the information is stored on the balloon and and then when the balloon is brought back and landed then you retrieve it from the balloon it's not transmitted in real time that is it's possible that that i don't think they even know yet because they don't have their hands on the equipment Um, you could see seems like how. a lot of effort, though, not to have some sort of way to get the information back. And on the off chance it actually did get, you know, destroyed. Also, if they have also if they have cameras. Yeah. You know, I again, you could send something like a drone over to take pictures and the drone can't, you know, relay the information back, you know, in properly encrypted fashion to China from Montana necessarily. Or maybe it can. I, we just we just don't don't know. Um, yeah, no. So the, so the open question is, was our national security harmed or do we have reason to think, did we have reason to think once they realized that this balloon was there, that our national security was going to be harmed by the not, not immediately taking the craft down. And they clearly made a calculation that it would be worse for our national security to take it down because it would create an international incident. And that, you know, maybe maybe this is all a way to make themselves feel better that they let it go over the Atlantic and then shot it down over the Atlantic. Maybe they weren't prepared to take it down. This was, you know, in the hands of the Pentagon. The Pentagon, despite its reputation for being, you know, full of, you know, psychotic Vietnam veterans who want to, you know, who, who are all have PTSD, is an incredibly cautious uh, institution about the actual use of military force and sure but they but but again to, like to, so. to the messaging aspect i mean this here's an opportunity and we'll see if he takes it in the next few weeks for the biden administration to talk about broader efforts on the part of the united states to to combat chinese espionage you know they steal industrial secrets they steal i mean they have a fairly uh sophisticated and developed network for stealing information, not just national security information, but, uh, you know, trade and, and industrial information. And there's all kinds of investigations into like the Confucius centers that are based on many college campuses. There's investigations into Chinese money flowing into to university campuses. I mean, there, there, there's a fair amount that the that the administration could could communicate to the American people about the level of concern we should have as Americans about our risk vis-a-vis China. And that, that's just the conversation that I haven't really heard uh, him have yet. And I think it's a good time to do it. He doesn't want it. You know, uh, he just recently said that he doesn't think that, you know, tensions with uh, between Beijing and Washington are particularly heightened uh, by this. Uh, m- meanwhile, the Chinese defense minister won't take Lloyd Austin's phone call. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, this is 
I go back to saying that, you know, there are reasons why you understand why things like this take place. I mean, I, I, I think once there is sunlight, you have to deal with things in the sunlight, but you can see why it is a hornet's nest for these kinds of international, you know, disputes to become matters of, uh, you know, that the broad public knows about because, um, there are all kinds of details along the way that would illuminate it or condemn it or condemn our behavior or illuminate it that simply cannot be exposed that they cannot be exposed to sunlight because so much else depends on their remaining secret and so uh no one will ever be satisfied like the conspiracy theories will never end but there, but look, we do look. Last year, uh, we arrested third. Well, we 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 only got a few of them. But there was there were Chinese agents, thirteen Chinese agents. Prosecutors charged them. Um, I think we only got two of the suspects in custody. We've had stories, you know, kind of trickling out here and there about people who were working in congressional offices who might have actually been caught spying for the Chinese. So the spy network is actually something that I get it. It's we don't want to we don't want to use old Cold War tropes. This is the Biden administration saying we have to look ahead. We've got to have a healthy relationship with China, blah, blah, blah. But if if a country is behaving in a way that that is, you know, aggressively hostile in terms of espionage, we probably should at least acknowledge it. And Americans should be aware of that and, and you know, vote accordingly for the kind of people who run this country and who run our military. And, and you know, the president appoints these folks, a lot of these folks. We need to have a sense of is there a risk or not, because conspiracy theories develop when there's a vacuum of information. People try to explain what's happening. I do think that these stories, you can read them. And if you read between the lines, um, the first thing that you would think in this case is, well, they have balloons and we have balloons. And, you know, we didn't react that hysterically when it came out because, you know, we, we also have balloons and we don't, you know, they, we don't, we we're doing it. And so they're doing it. And I guess we have to, you know, pound our chest and everything, but this is, this is just, you know, tit for tat. This is what's going on in the world of espionage. And it's now been a week or close to a week. And I don't think we have these balloons, I mean, maybe we have stuff that's way more advanced than the balloons. Maybe our satellites are so much better that the this whole thing about how they can get better pictures because they if they drop down to take the pictures, the the cameras are better than the ones that are on satellites. But um, maybe they have um, shown us for fools. And that's one of the reasons why they got so rattled and Blinken had to postpone the trip, that in fact, we learned something about Chinese capabilities from this moment that was not known before, which which jibes with the whole Trump administration, people saying we didn't know any better. We didn't know about any of this. But the but the overarching theory seems to be we we even given what we do know, we know they have an espionage network that, you know, between industrial and national security secrets, they're trying to get information. We know that they have spy satellites that, you know, are are constantly taking pictures of, of what's going on in the U.S. 
But the idea was always, okay, you know what, they have it, we have it. And we we assume that China is going to liberalize, right? Like it's going to become more like us, not less like us. And I think what this spy balloon kind of brought to the fore is, the, is, a, is a pressing question, which is if that's not the case, if they're not actually a power that we can uh, deal with, if they're much more going to become much more aggressive and much more hostile towards the West in, in the ensuing years, in the coming years, do we change our strategy too? The Biden administration seems to be sticking with this, you know, we have to deal with China because of our business interests, because of our shared, you know, desire not to not to have any sort of aggressive action. But if that's not the case, then we we should readjust. Not to say that, I mean, war is never inevitable and we shouldn't be like, oh, we're eventually going to have a war with China. But I just, again, like I, I don't know where we stand now or where we should stand vis-a-vis China because there have been a series of more aggressive actions by the Chinese, not just here, but against other sovereign countries. And should that change our mindset in terms of our diplomacy and foreign policy? I think everything about this episode makes it look like a Chinese miscalculation or an accident. Um, The supposed advantages associated with these platforms is that not that they have sophisticated higher resolution imaging satellites overhead, they're not geosynchronous. Satellites overhead have just as as good uh, imaging resolution. What they can do is they can loiter over a target for a long time so you can see what they do over the course of several hours as opposed to just however long it takes for a satellite to orbit the planet. Uh, The second is that they contain instruments that could uh, uh, perform signals intercepts or atmospheric testing. And I don't think, I mean, they can do signals intercepts from space too. Maybe they can do better at a lower altitude. <clears throat> but why would you do atmospheric testing and single signals intercepts over Colombia, over Central America? Sure, I understand why you'd want to do it over over Montana, over these silos, for example. But this it, tra- it traversed the breadth of the continental United States, and we're focusing on this one little area where we had a very su- substantial, uh, you know, uh, uh, national security interests, but to the exclusion of all the other areas of the country that it that it traversed and maybe only to retrofit it onto a theory about what the intention of this operation was. And maybe the theory is wrong. I mean, everything that has transpired since doesn't make Beijing look good, competent, especially capable of exercising these operations. They look like buffoons. Well, the and other they're, and they're the changing other. their story. Remember, they started yeah. out the very first thing that they said was this weird conciliatory posture that we haven't yeah. come to expect from Beijing, only for them to lurch back to a very familiar type of bombast. That sort of behavior doesn't suggest that there was a whole lot of planning and forethought that went into this. No, I mean, the other way of looking at it, again, in the rank speculation category, is that um, according to what we now seem to know, uh, this is an extensive Chinese program. Uh, they've, tr- According to uh, intelligence officials, they now understand that, that these uh, they've been taking these round-the-world balloon intelligence trips for years, and maybe they either got a little brazen or they were testing the waters by seeing how low they could fly. Or the PRC was freelancing. Undetected. Or the PRC right. was freelancing and Beijing That's didn't have the, any right. understanding of the, the extent of this operation or what this particular mission was designed right. to do or whether it was doing what it was designed to do in the first place. Okay, right. but I'm we just, but yeah, I was just gonna Go add, ahead. but we yeah. do we that contrast with what we actually know and have experienced with China, which is that they have these decades-long espionage, like they, they play the long game, let's put it that yeah. way. So in the 80s and 90s, they sent because we are very open to scientific collaboration and you know, we're like international science is science, we see no borders. We in, we had tons of Chinese scientists coming through Los Alamos and other of our high-tech labs, and they worked there for sometimes for a decade, and then they went back to China. And there's there's pretty mm-hmm. pretty damning evidence that they took a lot 
of our technology with them. And that's a lot of that is military technology. So I think that there's the idea that there isn't some sort of pretty aggressive and long-term espionage strategy on the, on the part of the Chinese government against the United States. Yeah, they might bungle, but I think we need to see the bungle in the broader context, which is a decades-long effort to, to steal what they can from us to make themselves more powerful, particularly with military technology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we have this weird complacency in which when stuff like this happens, we're like, well, they spy and we spy. Well, we don't know how well we spy. Spying in a close, you know, it it may be a lot easier for them to spy on us than it is for for us to spy on them. They're a closed society. We're an open society. Uh, you know, they have a massive uh, network of secret police and observers and Communist Party people who watch everybody else and all that. And we don't have that. So, um I think we assume that we just have this crackerjack intelligence capability that knows everything that the Chinese are doing. And I think we know that in certain SIGINT ways and things like that, we know this, I think, from stuff that's going on with Putin and Russia, that we wanted Putin to know that, yeah, we still have the capability of penetrating very deep within the governments and the high leadership of um you know, of some of these countries, either through bribery or whatever, or through in fantastic, uh, you know, not human intelligence work, but, you know, electronic signals intelligence work. But we don't know how good we are when it comes to China. We don't know that we know everything that they're doing. You feel like if we knew everything that they were doing, we could go to them at various moments and say, knock it off. We know what you're doing. Like, you can't, you know, can't steal our technology like this we're gonna whatever i mean i don't know what you know so that's the other part of this is that maybe because of pop culture maybe because of other things we may assume that we we are on an equal footing in relation to our intelligence capabilities with china and we're not i mean it's hard to tell because it it it's hard to distinguish between between uh, that sort of situation or a situation in which we know a lot and our capabilities are good, but we're paralyzed about what to do uh, about it. Because for decades now, it's sort of never the right time to confront China. That's always how it feels, including right now, right, because of uh, Taiwan uh, and because of what's going on with with Beijing and Moscow and so it, there's always this like, well, we don't want to we don't want to upset things too much at the moment. Um, and that that just it goes on and on and on. Well, I think historically also, if you want to talk about our great adversaries over time, one of the things that happened in the wake of both of the Cold War and of the um, Iraq Wars intelligence failures is that we overestimated the capabilities of both the Soviet Union and Saddam Hussein's Iraq and thought that they were, let's say, stronger, more capable or cleverer, stuff like that, than they in fact turned out to be. And that was all that was 30, 20 years ago. And that the intelligence posture of the United States may almost unconsciously figure, well, you know what? We kept thinking all these people were superheroes and they're not. They're just, you know, lousy bureaucrats who don't know what the hell they're doing. And maybe that's true of China, too. Or maybe they don't. They just they aren't yet 
in a place where they understand the relentlessness of the Chinese uh, drive to, um, you know, uh, place themselves in this hundred year effort to become the world's most important and powerful country. I don't know. These are all theories. Uh, they're they're all they're all very much based in you know. Well, we don't really know if the Chinese self conception is that anymore. It may not be, which would actually be quite dangerous. I'm much more comfortable with the China that perceives itself to be on this inevitable glide path to global hyperpowerdom because they'll take their time. If the Chinese conception of itself is one that has shrinking demographics, that has reduced income from trade that is hamstrung by its the re-Sovietization of its economy in order to appease certain domestic constituencies, and then mm-hmm. perceives itself to maybe be growing at a slower pace or not growing at all, then it sees a, a narrower window of opportunity. And with a restive population that's willing to actually object to the government's strictures, as we saw with some of the more extreme COVID lockdowns in some of the cities yeah. in China. Yeah, I think the whole point here is that um, there is a great deal of ambiguity about uh, China's posture, what it wants, what it's looking for, what its what its timeline is. As no, I think you know, importantly noted there, and that um, uh, we we remain in a state of um, denial. Uh, in many ways about about this and that at some point you know uh we we have to we have to kind of go on multiple tracks here and think as if like okay here are the possibilities right china's got a hundred year plan or china is the last five years have simultaneously been a time where the xi regime is consolidating its power not only in china but in hong kong and all of that, um, as all of these domestic problems are racing to the fore, the birth rate problem, the aging population problem, then COVID, all of that. And so then that creates a whole new different set of uh, possibilities for the Chinese, including most obviously a sooner rather than later effort to reintegrate Taiwan violently into the, you know, into the one China. We have to be able to assume to have postures based on either of those two theories. You know, if we're war gaming it out over time, we have to be in a position where we have, we have a strategy to deal with the longer term and we have a strategy to deal with the shorter term and that we are nimble enough to switch gears when the Chinese show their hand in one way or the other. And instead, I don't think we have any fixed idea of what they're doing, and then that's paralyzing. I don't know that. I'm not privy to where our intelligence is. Um, So much of the talk about China is about is economically driven anyway. Like, you know, we need to make sure that we have a separate supply chain line and all of that, all of which is also true. But, um, you know, the entire foreign policy apparatus of the United States for three decades had this focus on the chief adversary, which was Soviet Union specifically but kind of the soviet union and its and its um 
satellites and the its, its projection of power through other countries and all of that. And that was really what our foreign policy was about. Um, and our foreign policy is not about that. And, you know, we're, that's not what we're not, that's not what our foreign policy about now in relation to China. And maybe it shouldn't be. Um, but I'm not sure we have a foreign policy in relation to China or a American governmental approach in relation to China that is coherent and explicable, except that Biden says, you know, they're going to be our, this is a competition and we're going to win. But a competition for what? Is a competition for um, geopolitical power or is it a competition for economic, you know, the economic stewardship of the planet? But, you know, what's interesting to me is that our our, if not our foreign policy, the the geopolitical reality is looking a lot more like it did in the Cold War than all those people who were talking about the rise of the rest uh, had predicted. Um, we're pretty much focused on on China and Russia. Yeah, you know, it's it's not the 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 multipolar sort of you know uh, entanglement. Yeah, that's always a reality that that runs alongside it but we still have we still have big deal enemies um who are you know t- tied to communism in if not in in reality in history and and who hate us um you know you know what doesn't hate us our beds our beds don't hate us our beds are our friends can be cold can be it's winter uh you know we prefer to spend more time in bed in winter than in summer uh and uh and so cozy up with bull and brand sheets stay cozy all winter long with their buttery soft sheets made with 100 percent organic cotton threads that get softer with every wash feel you know they're super breathable so they're perfect for both cooler and warmer months when you need to prepare for the fact that it's going to get warmer loved by millions of sleepers so luxurious loved by three u.s presidents over ten thousand rave reviews they come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes from Twin Up to California King, designed to feel incredible for all sleepers, made without toxins, free from pesticides, formaldehyde, other harsh chemicals. And they fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. Best of all, Bowling Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. So make the most of bedtime with Bolin Brand Sheets. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code commentary at bollandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code commentary. Um, so we spent months last year talking intermittently about the Pennsylvania Senate race and uh, the fact that um, John Fetterman, the Democratic uh, candidate, um, had had a life-threatening stroke uh, in June, I believe, of 2022, uh, and that uh, we then saw him in debate, I guess, in September of 2022, uh, being a phasic um not being able to, he apparently having this auditory uh, recovery problem where he needed to see words on a screen rather than hear them in order to respond and to do what he needed to do. Uh, a lot of um, how dare you finger wagging when people said a person like this should not be running for the Senate, like this is this is not right. 
it's not right for him. It's not right for Pennsylvania. It's creepy that they're not doing something about this. And then speculation about, you know, what was going on here, why, why Democrats weren't making a move to swap him out with, um, because this was just Connor before Lamb. the primary May 3rd. It was in May. He oh, had the stroke. Right. That's yeah, right. That's Friday right. before yeah. the primary was on Tuesday. Tuesday. The stroke right. happened on Friday and yeah. they downplayed the severity of it so that he would win the primary, even though there right. were other candidates. Right. So, and then, and then it was clearly much worse than they feared. It took him much longer simply to get up on his feet and make a public appearance several months. And he was impaired. And uh, then people you know, there was this whole, could you say that? Was that disability shaming or disease shaming or whatever? So uh, Fetterman was at, as a sitting senator, having won in November, he was there at the State of the Union. There were a couple of shots of him uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the gallery, in the chamber. And then he apparently was taken to the hospital right after the State of the Union, having felt lightheaded. He's now been there for two nights. The doctors are saying that he did not have a stroke, but um, they're keeping him there for observation. I don't really understand what that means. Um, I think they're monitoring him for um, uh, any signs that he might have a seizure. That's at least the information they've released. They're worried right. about a seizure because remember, all of the strokes stemmed from an atrial fibrillation, a heart issue that he had, and he sort of not treated for several years. Right. He had the stroke, so right. there there are sort of several complications from the stroke. Right. But there's also the underlying heart condition. Yeah, and there's also the fact that if you have a stroke, uh, you have a fifty percent chance of having another stroke within the subsequent two to five years, something like that, um, which is, you know, terrible. And I feel terrible for him and his family and everything, but he should not be in the United States Senate. Uh, that's what we said. That's what people said. I'm, you know, and then we're, we're dismissed on the grounds that since we are not, you know, Democrats, uh, we wanted a different result in, you know, in the Pennsylvania Senate race. And this was some kind of opportunistic thing um i mean he's literally been in the senate for five weeks or four weeks but, or something so like that. this is the tension that that really struck me about the fetterman case and I, and I we might see other versions of this with other candidates but because he was a democrat what mattered about him being a democrat is that what the me, the mainstream media which was really covering this race and and obviously because it was important for for who controlled the senate accepted at face value every statement that was made from the Fetterman campaign. They accepted these uh, at face value, a statement from a doctor who turned out to be a donor to the campaign. They accepted when his wife stood up in, on primary night and said, oh, he's had a little health hiccup. This is far more than a hiccup. It was a very serious uh, medical event um, with long-term consequences. But the media then not only accepted the narrative uncritically, but then attacked anyone who raised questions about it. And what that meant is that the Democrats might not have gotten, but the but the voters of Pennsylvania still chose Fetterman. That at the end of the day, the thing is, they likely would have chosen any other Democrat as well who had the same policies and whatnot. I just wait. And why now would he's, you, why would we think that? Well, I mean, I think they would. I think Connor Lamb would have won. You don't think Connor Lamb would have beat Oz? I think Connor Lamb probably would have won. Yeah. I also think that um, McCormick would have won. Well, Dave McCormick would have won against. Fetterman against Fetterman. Maybe. Sure, I mean Oz I was are, terrible, and I think it was well, a very I mean, competitive cause... race with Connor Lamb. No, I don't think that's true at all. Well, we don't, look at how Scott, look at how Shapiro is governed. Pennsylvania's 
uh, Governor Shapiro, Scott Shapiro, I'm blocking his first name. Uh, uh, Josh. Josh. Josh Shapiro. Extremely interesting approach to governance. Very kind of thread and needle here. Forcing all this, all the state workers back into their offices. COVID is over. Um, doing a variety of other things um, that you would associate with Republican governance that I'm blocking on right now. Um, but Pennsylvania's politics are very unique. And Josh Shapiro seems to have his finger on it and is governing as close to the center as you can, given his mandate. He has a profound mandate to do whatever he wants to do. And he's not doing progressive stuff in that state. Right, um, but I don't know what that has to, th- th- this whole thing because is. Because this is not a progressive state. No. So Fetterman was a bad candidate, ideologically bad fit for the state ideologically. Is that what you're saying? Because you say that. Shapiro won by 15 and I'm not sure what the Fetterman margin was. Let me just check. Hold on. Uh, Fetterman Oz. So the Fetterman Oz margin was what? Sorry. Uh, five. Four, four uh, and a half. Uh, the other thing is he's uh, the governor, Scott, uh, Josh Shapiro, is uh, eliminating four-year degree requirements for a right. lot of Pennsylvania public sector jobs. These are Which yeah. these really working-class yeah. reforms. They yeah. do not align with progressive policies because right. Pennsylvanians are not aligned with aggressive with progressive right. policies. Right. And it was right. still a narrow margin of victory for, for Fetterman, given right. past performance yeah. of statewide. No, as I say, Fetterman underperformed Shapiro by 11 points. Shapiro won by 15, Fairman won by four and well, a half. Then that makes like that, that so, makes the health yeah. and it was right. That makes the health cover up even worse because it potentially yeah. could have changed the outcome of the election in and the and the balance of power in the Senate. And that like the, the but the willingness to run cover for a candidate who has serious health issues is is well, it's is extremely bad journalism, obviously, but it's a disservice to the citizens of Pennsylvania. And I it was a bad standard that was set and now remember, they can't write about it again in, without kind of being very careful. I mean, my, well, the point I'm trying to make that is that first, I don't yeah. think Fetterman won that race. I think Mehmet Oz lost it. That's a good way to put it. Yes. Well, or Fetterman didn't win that race. Josh Shapiro won it. I mean, that is to say, you have the top of, yeah. if you have the top of the ticket winning by 15, you said this at the time, Noah, like if, if he's going to win by 15, like how... Right. How you're gonna how you're gonna have the two top races go fifteen, you know, go like twenty points spread between them. And the cover up so, didn't it's matter. already pretty amazing up. that it was eleven. It's already pretty amazing if you think about it, right. that eleven yeah. that 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 uh eleven percent of the people who voted for it's not even eleven, it's like more like twenty-five percent of the people who voted for for uh Shapiro didn't vote for Fetterman. And the cat was out of the bag after that debate. I mean, nobody was saying, yeah. oh, well, maybe this is a debatable thing <laughs> anymore that there there was. But he promised he'd be effort. better in January. Remember, he's like, I'm going to yeah. be better in January, but yeah, I'm Oz is still going to be terrible. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and then, of course, there was the talk about the, the media and 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 narratives. So this reporter got the first interview with Fetterman. You remember, I can't remember. Where, Burns. Where, where, and where was she working? NBC. NBC, NBC News. News. Then she came away horrified because she said he can't interact. He had to, I had to speak. It had to go speech to text. Then he could read things. Then he could react. He did not, he was not communicative. He could not communicate. And uh, Giselle Fetterman, Fetterman's wife, said that she should be disciplined. They said there should be consequences. There should be consequences for reporting something that she had 
absolutely no reason whatsoever to you know to sort of make up and clearly didn't make up and that was the and that that was deemed an acceptable again not to play the what if game but if it had been a Republican candidate, and the and the wife of the Republican candidate had said there should be consequences for you reporting this. The outrage that would mm-hmm. have been, I State mean, people, media, what, yeah. Where's the <laughs> I? St- where was where was all the I stand with Dasha Burns? How how can you suppress that? She did a good reporting job. She said what she saw, um, because again, this is a missionary cause now for a lot of people. That is a Republican winning a seat anywhere or a Senate seat, whatever controlling the Senate is a recipe for the coming of authoritarianism and the end of America. But there was and therefore there was... and therefore there is an implicit, almost unconscious, any bad news that that would dog a, a democratic effort to win something in a situation where we did not know what the balance of power was going to be at the end of the Senate. You know, use of force against use of excessive force against reporters who uh, were reporting that who were saying the truth about Fetterman ha- had been approved. Like, but the there was another force against the Blues Brothers. There was another theme here, though, that I think made this story both more powerful and more interesting, and that's that the identity politics game came into play immediately. And that was the idea that if you have any sort of disability, you must identify as that disability. And you should be identified as disabled, which gives you, uh, you know, some sort of leeway in terms of judging one's ability. And that, first of all, if you know anyone who has any disability, that's completely condescending and ridiculous. Many people don't, some of the things we do with language, you know, saying I have, you know, cystic fibrosis or I have this condition, you're not, you don't want to be defined entirely by that condition. But that was actually, there's a whole lobby of like, how dare you point out that he has some limitations? Do we point out when someone uses a cane or wears eye? glasses like they were making false comparisons and basically calling out in advance anyone who would try to assess his ability to be a senator as as bigoted and heartless and and you know kind of attacking people with disabilities so that that part of it i think made the story even more difficult for journalists on the on in the mainstream media to cover because they did not want to be seen as insensitive and that sort of hypersensitivity around identity because for some activist types disability has become a kind of identity politics uh, wedge for them. And and his wife was very happy to play into that. In fact, she immediately took that playbook and ran with it. I mean, I think you're right. But in the end, um, they were just pulling out when it, when it comes down to it, whether that resonated with the disability rights talk or all of that. They were just pulling anything out that they could use to, you know, to, you know, it's like when you're put, setting up a barricade, you know, you take a chair, you take a you take a box, you take a you take some books, you do whatever you can to build the barricade because the idea is just, you know, triage and the triage argument to defend the idea that it was OK to vote for Fetterman was whatever it had to be at any given moment. So if it was you're you're making fun of him because of his disability, you don't like him because he's a progressive, you know, you don't care that Oz doesn't live in Pennsylvania, whatever it was you had to say that would help Fetterman's chances, because Fetterman wasn't the issue. The issue was control of the Senate nationally. And as I say, I think a lot of one of the things that happened with Trump is that uh, and, and what happened to the Republican Party after Trump and everybody is that that which was implicit before 
became explicit later, which is that voting in, in the view of many people who are in dominating positions in the mainstream media, voting for Republicans will kill this country and efforts to stop people from voting for Republicans are therefore morally justified and that you have to think about what the effect is of your, we talked about this in maybe even relation to the Twitter hearings this week, that in the end, this is all about stopping the bad guys. Once you can be in a position of thinking that this entire category of people, one of the two parties are the bad guys, then, then, um, a higher calling comes to you when you have a situation like this that is unforeseen and unforeseeable where candidate for office is hit with a debilitating uh, health condition that makes it impossible for him to serve appropriately in the United States Senate. Um, and, and here we are. I mean, uh, Christine, you bring this up in your the piece in the next commentary, but, you know, and Brett Stevens has a co- column about this today, that Leonard Downey, the former editor of the Washington Post, has, has who was so committed to this fantasy of objectivity, like that we should be objective in journalism, that he would not vote. He famously said he would never vote. He wouldn't cast a vote. He didn't go to the polling booth because... You know, he he, you know, like like David Souter and abortion, he shouldn't even be thinking about these things. So therefore, he wouldn't vote, uh, basically said, well, younger people in newsrooms uh, don't believe in objectivity. So uh, we should stop, con- you know, we should stop setting objectivity as a goal because they're much more concerned about social justice. That's like. Great. So, you know, make so, you know, read the read the quiet part out loud. Right. Or, you know. Tell everybody where where you're going with this. And the Fetterman, the treatment of Fetterman's illness was a way station on the way to, to this, which is you can't elect the bad guys. So you cover for anyone who's on the right side. Yeah. And you're and you're and you're and you're morally justified in doing that, even if it situationally you are playing it a little fast and loose with the actual facts. Not all change is progress in journalism. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just a rationalization. I mean, that's what moral, the pursuit of moral clarity always yeah. was. Just but a way it's to more, rationalize. It's yeah. Sorry. But which is why I think uh, Christine's point about sort of ableism uh, is important because if you embrace the idea that to say anything about someone like Fetterman is uh, some sort of bigotry, uh, then you have your your rationalization. You you don't have to you don't you you can look like you're doing something um, more uh, noble and true than simply covering up for your partisan side. I mean, it's not just objectivity that has to go. It's also access, which is one of these like primary drivers, supposedly, of uh, the journalistic class, because reporters don't have access to Fetterman. He won't talk to them in the hallways. Adam Gentleson, he used to be uh, Harry Reid's right-hand man, is now his chief of staff, says, well, he can't talk to you in the hallways because he can't hear in the hallways. There's all these echoes, what have you. But apparently he can't hear in his office either. He says, uh, this is in Fox News this morning, that um, his disability causes him to hear the voices of people like the teacher from Peanuts. Everybody sounds like a, a a, a trumpet with a mute on it, which sounds really intense and horrifying. Oh, is that a trumpet? 
Was it? I thought it never even occurred to me. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, no, amazing. I never actually thought about what instrument that was. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Understanding. I mean, this is one of the foremost uh, tenets of journalistic, you know, conduct is that you give them access, and when you don't, implicitly, things don't go well for you. Yeah. They make your life a little more difficult well, than it has to be if you just let us talk to you for a little bit. See, this is a really important point, broadly speaking, and that's shifting among journalists in our politics, because um, I've seen several stories now in mainstream media outlets, Times, Post and whatnot, uh, complaining about how DeSantis has a very tight you know, uh, boundaries around him and, and mainly talks to conservative journalists. He doesn't even going to bother. He's not even going to bother talking to the times because they misrepresent things. And oh, the horror. This guy is authoritarian. He's trying to control what we know. Meanwhile, nobody likes to talk about the fact that although Joe Biden sat down, I think, with uh, PBS NewsHour last week, he has given barely any sit down interviews throughout his first two years of presence of his presidency compared to the hundreds that that his is uh, both Trump and, and Obama gave. He makes himself extremely unavailable to any kind of journalistic interrogation. And that's just been accepted as like, wow, that's just that's fine. Nobody want, nobody's going to talk about that. But when when someone who's eyed as a potential candidate in 2024 on the other side of the aisle says explicitly, I'm going to talk to journalists who I think are going to be objective and attempt to report what what what's going on here. Um, that's, you know, proto authoritarian. Uh, that's fun. Uh, speaking of DeSantis, so um, we have some more polling out uh, the first interesting effort to gauge what would happen in a more crowded field other than trump DeSantis, where uh we have ambiguous polling but that shows that there's a real race between trump and DeSantis. Uh, you know late last year was like DeSantis was kind of like almost crushing trump and then a couple of polls came out that showed trump crushing DeSantis, and then there were other polls that showed them very tight and we now have this uh, yougov poll that has Trump and DeSantis pretty tight, but with DeSantis ahead. And then if you add in Nikki Haley as a as a as a variable, uh, she takes about eleven percent of the vote. Now, interestingly, she doesn't take it from DeSantis; she takes it from both of them, but she takes it a little more from DeSantis. And in this reckoning, uh, Trump wins by a couple of points, while she takes eleven points. Um, I don't know what to make of this. There's a lot of uh, early state data. It's not just it was uh, Iowa. We got Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. Four early states for on the Republican calendar, at least. We don't know what's going to happen with Democrats. But um, Trump was behind in in Iowa, which I found surprising. It was only a couple of points, um, but he was behind in Iowa. He was behind in New Hampshire, and he was behind in South Carolina. He still is uh, in the head uh, in the lead in Nevada, and I expect that to be probably a, a strong base of support for Donald Trump for a variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, it was it was interesting the degree to which even with a, a split field and, and there were a lot of other candidates in there and they were all polling in the single digits. But Nikki Haley only really performed in South Carolina, which makes a lot of sense, given that's her base, but still was in third place, like 13 percent. Um, Monmouth University in New Jersey has a similar poll about or a national poll about Republicans and just basically testing name ID, which is really all you can do at this stage. And well, uh, 41% of Republicans have no opinion on Nikki Haley, which is kind of surprising. I, I mean, she was a pretty prominent figure, not just in the administration, but in Republican politics prior. She's 
she's got a long way to go to build any sort of name recognition outside of her home state. And why? <laughs> just, I'm sorry. Well, honestly, I get, I get it. I know why people run for president. Well, she hasn't been in the news. She was in the but news through 2018 when she was UN ambassador after having been the governor of South Carolina. And then she quit the UN and she hasn't been much in the news. You would almost say that her numbers are pretty, uh, are pretty remarkable. She's like way outperforming Pence, for example. She's way outperforming Pence. Pence is a far more polarizing figure. Um, right. Although in this particular well, poll, he's, he's, liked by many more Republicans than he's disliked by 55 to 28%. Um, But still, as far as name ID goes, just about every Republican has heard of Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and Ted Cruz and even Mike Pence to to a lesser degree, still 20% of people, 20% of Republicans say, I've never heard of the guy, which is bizarre. But Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Glenn Youngkin, nobody knows who these people are. And if right. that's your first goal is just make you got to make some news for yourself. I mean, it's it's just a way to suck up a whole lot of oxygen and and de- and, and detract from the prime objective. One briefly, there's a piece in Politico yesterday that was fascinating. Um, it's long. David Friedlander inter- interviewed a whole lot of big name Democratic donors, a lot of names who, are, who we know and you probably know. Um, but, you know, the the big money guys as insofar as they matter and all of them to a man were convinced of the need to narrow down the field but they don't think anything's going to happen before the early states vote. First four states have to vote before there's any consolidation effort, at which point it may be too late. I mean, look, either Trump is going to be damaged by the time, you know, the elections roll around or he isn't. If he does not, you know, if if we go with that theory that, you know, the field has to winnow itself after the first four states. If Trump doesn't, you know, win 50, 60 percent of the vote in these states, you know, maybe he can hobble him his way because of the because of the um, primary rules and the fact that it's, you know, winner take all in most of these states. Um, But he is going to be so damaged. I mean, in fact, you know, if he is not just, you know, sort of like the, the, you know, Cincinnatus having dropped his plow returning to returning to save the country. Um, and if he is not accepted as such by the Republican primary electorate, I mean, he shouldn't run at all. Uh, that's that that's an interesting problem. If he remains in the four, 30s and 40s in polling, I know he's already a declared candidate, so uh, I'm not going to go there. But I mean, it, you know, it's like he really should be in the was the president. Supposedly, he's really popular and a lot of Republicans think the election was stolen from him. His numbers should be better. Now, maybe well, he can he's... knock DeSantis down. Maybe Haley won't happen. Maybe, you know, I don't know, Pompeo, the, the, it's ridiculous to think of Pompeo being a serious presidential candidate. He has one issue, which is foreign policy. And though, though I would love foreign policy to be, a, you know, a centerpiece of the 2024 campaign, I really doubt it's going to be, except in a bad way, except as a fight over whether we should continue to support the war in Ukraine or something like that in which Republicans um, will end up being bad, you know. So so we should probably not want that to be tested in the form of a foreign policy candidate. Nonetheless, go ahead, Abe, I'm sorry. Well, I just think in terms of, uh, you're talking about Trump's numbers, what Trump is doing now, most recently, uh, regarding Ron DeSantis, I think um, is ridiculous and makes him look even more like the 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 pipsqueak uh, in, in the game here. Uh, he, he, he is... Uh, 
putting up on on truth social uh these this uh, supposed picture of desantis um uh i guess in his teaching days uh with su- supposedly with uh teenage teenage girls at a bar uh and uh the idea is to paint desantis as some type of groomer here um this is a terrible failed strategy and uh i think we've talked a lot about whether desantis is is going to have what it takes to sort of bring the fight boldly and squarely to trump this makes me continue to think he should do nothing of the sort anytime soon um i think when 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 you've got attacks that weak and um and silly um and just blatantly desperate you don't do a thing you don't you don't bring yourself down to that guy's level i think i think desantis sits back continues to rack up his his gubernatorial policy wins um and and l- let's trump flail you could be right uh obviously trump did not apparently suffer from having said that ted cruz's father killed john f kennedy junior john f kennedy excuse me uh and uh and that uh, heidi cruz was ugly and all of that so so that's where trump mind must be going that people love when he does this not that not that it's bad i think all those things had much more force the first time around um but part of the effect was i can't believe this is happening mm-hmm. now the effect is i can't believe this is still happening um it's right. a it's a much different impact yeah. it, is, it is whatever was attractive about his his going off the rails the first time around is is no longer necessarily attractive I mean, it's more interesting to me that Andrew Kaczynski of uh, of CNN dug up the fact that uh, DeSantis endorsed, uh, you know, the idea of making major changes to Social Security and Medicare following uh, Paul Ryan's uh, lead uh, in when he was running for Congress in, uh, you know, in the in, in the 2010s. Um, did you see a- the Washington Examiner did something similar to Joe Biden? Yeah, <laughs> they found a clip of yeah, Joe there's Biden like footage back from the in the plasticine. <laughs> Where he's talking about how we need to sunset all all of our laws every five years or yeah. thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's taken every position. Yeah. At all times. Well, Joe Biden. Joe Biden disowned literally the only important piece of legislation he belt. ever championed. Yeah, literally the only piece of legislation that he that is like is a legacy for him. Which yeah, the 1994 crime bill, and that that's something that you know he now um, is sorry for because uh, because uh, you know we had a 30 year you know, we had a speaking of 30, crime, we had a 25 year crime drop that he then had to disown. Can I just add that uh, everyone always rants and raves about how we need more bipartisanship? Well, yesterday on Capitol Hill, we had some bipartisanship when Democrats joined Republicans to kill a uh, um, a piece of legislation that the D. DC City Council passed that would allow foreigners to vote in elections. Hmm. And it looks likely they're also going to uh, get rid of uh, a criminal code revision that was done by our extremely progressive and totally nutty city council that would have reduced penalties on the kinds of things that we're seeing on the daily here in D.C., carjackings, armed robberies, uh, violent assaults. So um, at, at this all comes at a time when a Democratic congresswoman was assaulted in her in her um, apartment building here in D.C. So I there the room for bipartisanship on on the issue of crime is perhaps growing, at least here in D.C. I thought that is very heartening uh, development. Okay, but before we get away from this 
a social security medicare thing which is snowballing into an actual campaign issue in a way that yeah. i think is really great and doesn't necessarily cut the way everybody thinks the politics of this thing will cut and, and it's not just because i'm i'm enjoying george w bush's revenge here having set the stage for this in 2005 and everybody having gotten on board and then only kind of discovering oh it's bad politics and then backing away from it too bad you put your chips on the table and you deserve to have to explain yourself Joe Biden is in Florida yesterday trying to take this fight to Rick Scott and by extension around DeSantis, but mostly Rick Scott over how you can't, you know, he's not going to, nobody's going to touch Social Security and Medicare, even though we have to. It's implicit in Joe Biden's argument, explicit in the State of the Union, insofar as he said we need to restore solvency to these programs. And he's just up there lying. He says, you know, um, he told this audience that he's reduced the deficit that uh, the deficit and the federal deficit by 1.7 trillion. And he said, quote, that 15%, guess what? That paid for all of this. That 15% that he's referring to is the corporate alternative minimum tax that was in the um, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which took effect on January 1. First of all, the math doesn't make sense. Second of all, the timeline doesn't make sense. Third of all, he's just saying whatever the hell he wants to say and he knows that no one's going to fact check him, except for Republicans. But Republicans can really get him on the fact that he says these programs need to be reformed. And the only thing you need to do is this one quick fix that why didn't anybody ever think of it before? I mean, it's in, it's in, it doesn't make sense in an intuitive level. You don't actually have to understand the really labyrinthine problem of entitlement reform to get around the idea that wow, a one-time tax increase really probably won't do this because otherwise somebody would have done it over the last 30, 40 years. There's mm -hmm. a big window here. And if Democrats want to make domestic finance, domestic spending, the trade deficit, uh, the federal debt and federal deficit, they want to make that the big issue. And the only thing they're going to say is, well, we just need one-time one tax increases on wealthy Americans. I, I feel like there's an opportunity here for a savvy communicator, not even a savvy communicator, just somebody who understands budgetary math to be able to say that you can't square that circle. Uh, you're right. The simple, that, the simple politics yeah. of this is anybody who touches these programs is going to get burned. It's a third rail. And that's, that's ingrained. Every, that everybody understands that on a, an instinctual level here. It's been generations that's been beaten into you. But now we have Democrats. Now we have Joe Biden. Now we have the Washington Post editorial board admitting that these programs aren't solvent in this decade. So now we know I, we have to do something. And now it's just a matter of what do we do? That was not the debate in 2005. Well, it was the debate in 2005 and Bush lost it. I mean, he lost it in the sense to, that... To the argument that we didn't have to do anything at all. Right. That's not the argument um, here anymore. No, but it will be. I mean, it, the default is don't do anything until there's a crisis. I mean, that's that 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 ends up being the default until, you know, six weeks when you say, oh, you know what, if we trust one... <laughs> The federal government is out of money in six weeks, so we're going to have to raise taxes 30% across the board. It's the same you know, argument against doing anything about China. I mean, it is the, it, it was, you know, look, we have a history of this. The Committee to Save the World, uh, the, the you know, the Treasury Secretary, the Fed Chairman, the, the, in the 1990s, their policy was, well, you know, we'll get together and solve crises as the crises happen. And this was a fantastic strategy until the world blew up in 2007, 2008, because they didn't solve the 
crisis and then everything, you know, and the, the world economy cratered by 30% in six weeks, you know, it's like, it's an astonishing thing, but it is the political, it is the, the political temptation is I'm not going to be the one, you know, I'm not going to be, I, look, if everybody touched the third rail at once, maybe the current, you know, there would be so much current that, the, you know, would be dispersed and then everybody would just like get a shock, but wouldn't die. Well, no, but, nobody you know. touches. No, nobody touches the third rail. You get some sort of a commission out there to have to to put something together that they have. This is why I was I was talking with about this with Jonah, thinking back to 2011, the yeah. super committee, the Simpson Bowles committee, and sequestration, which was the the solution to the problem because sequestration was designed to be so stupid that nobody would allow it to happen, and it happened because it was so stupid. A, but B, because everybody could say, well, we, we didn't want this. Yeah. Nobody wanted this. Well, I mean, there was the same story in 83 when they when they 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 sort of fixed Social Security and they said we're fixing Social Security for a generation. And it's now two generations since they fixed Social Security, um, which uh, anyway, it, maybe it's a good thing uh, right now. I don't think our politics is healthy enough for it to be a good thing. Um, So. You know, uh, you have Fox on the one hand, you have MSNBC on the other, making it will make it impossible, even for this game that you're talking about to happen, um, because there's just so much incentive for like five people and particularly with a five person majority in the House for five people to say, we're not doing this liar. You're a liar, liar. You know, Corel DeVille yelling liar is how you don't get Social Security and entitlement reform anyway. Uh, and and Joe Biden's demagoguery, which is much more important. But looking for leadership here is not going to happen. So you're saying that there maybe there will be a day of some ex machina in the form of a of a commission or something like that. But a commission is a bipartisan thing, nonetheless. Like even if you have to appoint people to do it outside to make a proposal, and you say we'll go with this proposal. In the end, that has to be bipartisan, and I just don't know that there is any bipartisanship possible. Despite despite Biden's efforts to reach out across the aisle, as he did so beautifully, and which we heard from the, you know, from the mainstream media, was just so so heartening on Tuesday. It's just the 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 outreach was just um, just breathtaking. I'm being ironic in case people. I'm now saying that because you never know what people are going to take away from when you say things. Anyway. Uh, Everybody should have a wonderful weekend. I hope your team wins the Super Bowl. I myself am looking forward to the commercials. I hear John Travolta is singing Summer Nights uh, on a commercial with um, a couple of other people, which is... Oh, God, don't don't let him CGI Olivia Newton-John, though. Please, like, leave her in peace. <laughs> oh, my God, that would be pretty weird. Anyway, uh, no, somebody said it was a tribute to Olivia Newton-John, so I don't know what that's, that's going to mean. Okay, anyway. I approve of that. Yeah. So, Super Bowl, we're back on Monday uh, with nothing whatsoever to say about the Super Bowl. This is the least sportsy podcast in America. I'm going to watch. <laughs> I'm going to watch, too. But what, what are we going to have to say? That Jalen Hurts, he really, I don't even know if his name is pronounced Jalen. I assume it's Jalen. Anyway, he really, and uh, Mahomes, uh, and we'll do, we could do that and then act like we know what the hell was going on. But, yeah, but you know what, John? You, you, you will say something because you actually like this stuff. I won't say anything. I have a good chance. I won't see a second of it. 
I like it, but I I like it, but I stop I stop paying attention to sports, and so you always come in dazzled the next day. Like this was an astounding game. This is real. I'd never seen a play like that. A last game lesson. Okay. <laughs> See here again. I'm not gonna say. It. I'm not gonna say it. Because I have no right. You should. It's good that you enjoy it. I'm not I criticizing. Think Abe has it. your number here. Yep. <laughs> but I don't have any right. Like I don't invest. I don't put in the time. I don't put in the time that required to actually express. A, Saying a we need to get a fantasy opinion. football team going here. The commentary I podcast. I still don't understand. Football. I'm just going to finish it. Like I have all these friends who play fantasy football. I've read about. Fan- I still don't understand how fantasy sports works. I don't get it and i don't it's it's bizarre to me like and and it's like some of these games that came in after i was an adult you know video games multi multiplayer but whatever the 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 multiplayer games massive multiplayer online yeah right (laughs) see that all that all came in after i was already like in my 20s and i therefore i thankfully escaped the addiction that might have come from them because I was already too old or something to really follow along or I was too annoyed by the by how primitive the graphics were or something like that. Um, because it would have ruined my life and I had it come on. I would have been like become obsessed and you know, and would have like, you know, sat for it, I did enough Tetris to know it would have been bad for me. And fantasy football is exactly I don't understand the rules and I don't want to learn the rules. Because if I learned the rules and I then started it, maybe I would get hooked on it, and then that would be really bad. Anyway, do you guys do any fantasy anything? I no. think that's you don't just something sport. we're going to keep Gardening. to ourselves, John. <laughs> okay. okay. I do fantasy landscaping. They don't have fantasy Aikido <laughs> games, unfortunately. So someone needs to get on that. Build well, the that. The point of Aikido is... <laughs> Not to is to do it in reality, right? Yes, exactly. Anyway, yeah. Okay. Well, my friend Dan uh, became a golfer because he played PGA golf on his computer, and he loved it so much that he decided to have the actual experience of golf, which I still think is the most interesting gateway drug story I've ever I've ever heard. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs> Until then, for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.